the third chapter, as I did not get through with it this past Lord's Day in this next section, is again, as in many cases of Scripture, so, so rich in the glory of Christ. First Timothy chapter 3, would you please stand as you turn to First Timothy, if you're able to. If you're not able to, that's fine. First Timothy chapter 3. And um, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, honest, able to teach, not a drunkard, nor a violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that is, those outside of the church, so that he may not fall into the disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified and not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified and not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each have be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you, that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated and ask you to please go to prayer. Pray for me as I seek to preach this text. And I'll lead us. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray for your grace as we come to this most important part of the worship service, the proclamation of the Scriptures. Thank you for Charles and his faithfulness. And we pray that you would be with me as you were with Charles this morning. And help me to preach your word, O Lord, with clarity and unction. Be with the congregation that they hear that it might be understood. That you would apply it to their hearts and minds, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was having a very, very difficult time uh, coming up with a introduction to this particular sermon. And at 4.34 in the morning last night, it came to me. 
I know because I looked at the clock. Just wonder what time it was. And what Paul might do is ask Timothy this question, why do you do the things that you do in the church? What is the motivation that you have for doing the things that you do in the church? And we can ask ourselves this question as well as to the officers. Why do you do the things that you do in the church? Is it that you think your ideas are better than anybody else's and therefore you must push them through? Is it that you think everybody else is simple-minded and therefore you must uh, rule the day by carrying your, uh, your ideas forward? What is the reason you do the things that you do? There was an elder here one time, and his wife said, I can get done what I want to get done through my husband because he's an elder. And so when he came to the meetings, he came with his instructions from his wife and carried them forth as she had recommended. Why do you do the things that you do as a servant in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me tell you something. Everybody here is a servant of Jesus, everybody, not just the officers, not just the deacons and the elders, not just the Sunday school teachers, but everybody here is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your service does not stop when you leave this building. As a matter of fact, your service begins in reality when you leave this building because here you sit in the pew quietly, You listen to the sermons when you're not asleep. And hopefully God blesses and works grace in your life. And you leave. That's where the battle starts. Outside those doors. When you go and live in a fallen world. Why do you do the things that you do in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, what what Paul has done uh, with Timothy is remind Timothy as a young man of his responsibilities to do certain things and not to do other things in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you do the things that you do, Timothy? And so we saw last week, and this will be a bit of a review, because the church is in constant danger of corruption, and it is in constant danger of corruption. Go to a Presbyterian meeting. Go to our General Assembly coming up. Uh, and hear the things that are being talked about and debated and discussed and voted on in our own General Assembly. Uh, things that really call them to question the very authority of Scripture, which I would have never have thought the PCA would be questioning and then, uh, wondering and bringing forward some of the things it's bringing forward in the conservative denomination. I would have never thought it. Because the church is in constant danger of internal corruption, the leader of the church must be uh, see to it that proper conduct is observed. In other words, proper care is taken to the church. So three things we looked at, that believers are to care for the church because it is required to care for it. It's the abiding place of God, and it is the reservoir of the Word of God. When I talked about it being um, required, Paul writes Timothy here, that he is to understand his responsibilities as a leader to conduct himself in a certain fashion, not in a lazy way, not in an overbearing way, not in a careless way, but thoughtfully with regard to what the church is and the value of the great church. So we talked about church doctrine 
There were certain people teaching things that were not to be taught in the church, and Timothy had to deal with that. There were false, false prophets in the church. And so Timothy had to deal with that church doctrine, practical theology. As a leadership in the church, uh, the civic leaders, we want to be sure that we conduct ourselves in a proper fashion, that we may have rest from our civic leaders so that the church may prosper. Here he is talking about being in prayer for those who exercise authority over us, that the church might be able to live at peace and prosper. Because a church church that's forced to go underground, a church that is uh, receiving opposition, is a church that is not going to be as productive as it could be if it was out in the open. One thing I've heard that persecution does, it gets rid of the folks that aren't really converted. But we'd rather see the people converted and moving out into the world for the glory of Christ. So we pray for those in authority. Then you dealt with church polity, which has to do with the government of the church, which was the elders, the officers of the church, and that they are to have a concern for the well-being of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second thing was this is the abiding place of God. The church is called the house of God, the place where God dwells. And there's this strange mystical union that exists between the Christian and his creator, that God's spirit indwells us. Somehow and in some way there is the presence of God's spirit in every single believer. As a matter of fact, if you're converted, if you're truly converted, then God's Spirit lives within you. The Spirit of Christ lives within you. No one can say Christ is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. That's what the Spirit, that's what the Scriptures scriptures clearly teach that. And so the Spirit of God dwells within us, as he says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 16, do you not know that the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then again, 1 1 Corinthians 6, 19, flee immorality, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. And I've heard a lot of people say that because your body is the temple, you shouldn't drink Diet Cokes. That's not what this means at all. If you look at the text, he's talking about being united with a prostitute. People take... One of my professors in, in college, and I'm sure I've told you this before, said, you can make the Bible say anything. You can. It's like somebody taking this, you know, you, you shouldn't drink that because it's bad for you. Or you shouldn't eat that because it's got carbohydrates in it. I don't care. It doesn't say not to in the Bible. And so that's where we go. So, again, people take text and... I quit drinking Diet Coca-Cola, by the way. I don't think it's one person individual talked to me and convinced me I shouldn't be drinking Diet because I quit drinking them. I drink other things now. <laughs> so this presence is something that goes beyond comprehension. We cannot comprehend the infinite. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. And nonetheless, we know that these things are true. The last thing was that the church is the reservoir of God's truth, as he says here in the text about the church. Uh, I hope to come to you soon, writing these things, that you may know, if I delay you, how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. There it is. So the church contains, then, uh, the scriptures. And I meant to bring my... Oh. My grandmother one time said to me, if your head was not attached to your shoulders, you would lose it. I meant to bring my confession with me. 
the necessity of Scripture, first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, the, um, the, in Article 2. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and the power of God as to leave them unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary to salvation. The church is the reservoir of the word of God, of the truth of scriptures. And understand this, that the church does not give authority to the Bible. The Bible is an authority in and of itself. The Roman church has an entirely different view of it. They give authority to the scriptures. No, no. The Bible is the authoritative word of God, and the church recognizes that. And the church then houses that. It is, the, it is the, the dwelling place, if you will, of how God's word is communicated, how God's word is received. It's, because it's up to the church. Pagans are not going to preach the Bible. They don't believe it. They hate Christ. It is the church, you see. And so it is. This teaches us again, and I would encourage you, if you're not that familiar with the, uh, with the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, to, to, uh, to make yourselves well aware with it. And so it is the authority of the Scripture rests not with what the church says, not with any council, but as it is the Word of God. Um, it is a reservoir of truth. Then we get into the things from this morning. So Paul ends this last verse. <clears throat> Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. This preceding section, uh, he ends it with an emphasis on the truthfulness of the gospel. And he writes that it is a confessed grandeur of the gospel. And it is in that something of an extreme enigma. That's what he's saying here. It is an enigma. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. In the Bible, um, godliness uh, or a mystery was something that was concealed. As the gospel was contained in the Old Testament, it was rather secret, though. It was rather, rather mysterious, rather shadowy, if you will, in the Old Testament. There were types and shadows. Um, and so... Uh, Dr. Knight here says that this verse 17 is emphatic affirmation of everything that Paul has said before. Great is the mystery of godliness. And what is this? Well, it says this. How is it possible that God, who is altogether infinitely holy and righteous and just, can have anything to do with people who are the antithesis of righteousness and holiness. Not only that, we're enemies by nature of God. How is this going to be corrected? How is the problem going to be repaired? That's what he's talking about, the mystery of godliness. Because he goes into then a definition or an exposition of the work of the Lord of Jesus Christ. Well, this had to be revealed to us, you see. It had to be made known to us. Wake up, wake up. Everybody wait. Some people do this. They make me think they're not paying attention. In the Old Testament, we read in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Well, what does that mean? It means that the creation itself demonstrates the reality of God's existence and care for his creation. I don't see 
I said this one time and somebody left the church because of it. I don't see how anybody that's reasonable and thinks through things can possibly believe in evolution. Life by chance. How can anyone possibly believe that? I know I've told you this before. I'll tell you again. Um, Carl Sagan, everybody knows the big atheist, big evolutionist. And R.C. Sproul wasn't an atheist. He was stalled for the faith. Wanted to debate Carl Sagan. And uh, Sproul said, okay, I'll give you uh, this mass the size of a marble inert. He said, let's go back beyond that. And he crossed the thing and said, we don't have to. And Paul said, oh, yeah, we do. And we do indeed. Where did it come from? What acted upon it to make it explode? The creation is not an example of chaos. It's an example of order. And the marvel of the human body, it's amazing how well we're put together. I understand things don't work right as you get older. They wear out. That's a part of the curse. But to study the way the body works, even on the cellular level, is just absolutely amazing. It is not a product of chance. It's a product of God's design. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. There's a God, you see. That's what it's saying. And over in Romans 1, Paul says his invisible attributes are clearly seen through the things that have been made. The problem with that is there's no message about redemption in the creation. There is no way to learn about Christ from looking at Psalm 19. There's no way to learn about Christ by simply looking at the creation. Why? It doesn't contain the gospel message. It's incomplete. And so it was then necessary for God to reveal, as he did, beginning in Genesis, verse 3, chapter 3 and verse 15. There's that first promise, the acorn, if you will, of the promise of redemption. He will bruise his hill, but he's going to crush his head. And there on the cross of Calvary, Christ did that great work of defeating Satan. So that now because of what Christ did on the cross of Calvary, by taking our sins and condemnation upon himself to the degree that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, that's what your sins did to Christ. That's what my sins did to Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nails in his hands, nails in his feet, crown of thorns upon his head, being ridiculed, being mocked. But the greatest punishment was what God did to him. Isaiah 53, you read all those verses. He was crushed for our iniquities, he was pierced for our transgressions, and you come to verse 10. It pleased the Lord, to crush him. That's the mystery of godliness. Christ himself is the epitome of godliness. And so here he says, and I'm going to, I can't see that clock back there. I think it says 930. We're good. We're very good. 
This mystery was not made known until the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the mystery was fully revealed. The birth of Christ, the work of Christ, the fulfillment of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he came into the world, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. You remember what his disciples said? Christ said, I'm going to die. And I'm not just going to die a normal death. I am going to die a horrific death. Someone wrote one time, I cannot remember who it was, it said, Socrates faced death bravely as he drank the hemlock and decided to die. You look at Stephen, the martyr. Stephen faced death bravely. Well, what was wrong with Jesus? Why was he so afraid? Why was he so terrified? Why was he so distraught? In the garden, he said to the disciples, Pray with me. I am to the point of death because of sorrow. Because of the oppression of what I know is going to take place. Pray with me. And so the disciples, you know, he leaves his three closest ones. They fall asleep. Christ goes away and prays three times the same thing. If there is a way. For this cup to pass from me and let it pass. Three times he prays that. Well, it wasn't that he was afraid to die. It was he knew what he was going to experience on the cross of Calvary. And that was going to be hell on the cross of Calvary. As God poured out his wrath. Again and again and again. Until justice was satisfied. So he says, here he comes to this now. He was manifested in the flesh. This is likely an early church hymn or an early creed of the church. He was manifested in the flesh. This has to do, of course, with the incarnation. In the fullness of time, Christ came, born of a woman, born under the law. That he might redeem those who are under the law. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Vindicated by the Spirit. Well, this has, I think, possibly two meanings. One is, of course, uh, the baptism of Jesus, where he, after he kneels down and is baptized like a Presbyterian, he gets up and walks up out of the water, not underneath the water. He walks out of the water up on the shore, and the heavens open, and the dove descends on the Spirit of God, and that voice says, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. A vindication of the Spirit. But then, I think what is being referred to here primarily is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. As the Spirit of God raised him from the dead. Uh, here's a verse you should memorize. If you haven't already, I don't recall if it was one of our verses or not. Uh, the book of Romans, in the first chapter, I'm going to read down through four, starting with verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called by an apostle, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God by the power according to the spirit of holiness, and the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There was a declaration. This is my son. 
This one has accomplished redemption. This one has made it possible for sinful people who have no interest in holiness or righteousness, have no interest in the things of God whatsoever, to be made right with me through faith in Jesus Christ, vindicated by the Spirit of God, we read here, by the power of the resurrection from the dead. There was a declaration without a, battle, without a shadow of a doubt that when Christ came up from the dead, every claim that he made, every witness about him, all of those things proved to be true. And listen to this. And I've told you this before. Had he not come out of the grave, we would not be here. There would be no church. Who made such claims as Jesus made? I can forgive sins, you see. You don't believe me. Well, I'll ask you a question, which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven, but get up and walk. Well, obviously, get up and walk's much more hard to do because you, you can't prove you can forgive sins, but you can prove this man can walk. So he says this, or that you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins on earth. I tell you, take up your mat and leave. And he does. How are you going to argue with that? That you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. That is our hope. The work of Christ on our behalf. We should rejoice in that. Every single day, every breath that we take, uh, vindicated by it, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. The last portion of that. And so we see here then that the reality of the gospel is this. That it has the power to bring life to the dead. That it has the power, as promised, to bring forth conversion. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the revelation of true hope. Believed on in the world. There go those disciples out among the people. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's God's son. God in the flesh. He went to the cross of Calvary and he suffered for the sins of his people. All you have to do is to believe the gospel. And your sins will be taken away and God will accept you in his sight as righteous. Believed on in the world. The efficacy of the gospel in everybody that sits here this morning that is converted is evidence of the efficacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you believe in him. As you trust in him. As you hope in him. And let me tell you this. I thought about this the other day. The fullness of the work of Christ will never be known in this world. It won't be. You're going to have struggles. You're going to have trials. Read chapter 10 of Knowing God. It's called God's Wisdom and Ours. Packer points out in there that some people believe that once they're converted, they have this secret insight into God's providence of why he does this and why he does that. And they look to read special messages in God's providence. And Packer says, you'll drive yourself crazy if you keep trying to do that. God's wisdom is this, knowing and loving Christ. That's God's wisdom. And being saved from the condemnation that our sins deserve. The revelation is a revelation of hope believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, we read that Christ is before the people. And as he's talking, he's taken up and disappears into a cloud. And what does the angel say? 
don't stand here gazing at the sky. He's, you can't see him anymore. He's gone. He's gone to heaven. He's going to sit at the right hand of God. Now, what you have to do now, you see, is preach. Get out and carry forth the message, which they do, which remember what was said to the people finally. This same Jesus that you saw taken up in the cloud is one day going to return. That's our hope. That's where we place, if you will, all the eggs in that basket, the reality of the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead in Christ, where it says we'll be alive forevermore. Man, that ought to stir you up to gratitude and to help you understand the biggest woes of this life. What does Paul say? I am convinced that our greatest pains, our greatest trials do not compare to the glory that shall be revealed in us through Christ. Do you know him? Do you love him? Or is he simply religious? Is that you're just a religious person? But you don't really know Christ. You like religion. It's a professed that recognizing he is our hope for the forgiveness of our sins and trusting him completely. Let's pray.